on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Like, I actually think that our lack of mythology in the modern contemporary world is creating some of our problems, our lack of capacity to produce mythology properly. So, uh, for instance, when you have a COVID, that, that is a very violent, it's a very, you know, marked thing that's happening in the world around us. When stuff like that, that's really remarkable happens, then we need mythic images to engage that, to relate to that. However, modernity tells us there isn't a soul, an intention, a subject that drives the COVID, COVID pandemic. That's just a virus. It's just like, you know, a virus is just like a little machine, a little bigger than a molecule. So we intuitively missing that. It's like, it's like we've been deprived of that language almost. And then what people do is that they desperately try to create a language that can read the intention uh, in the COVID. And that's where conspiracy theories actually emerge. People need to read intention and subjectivity, but they have sort of lost the mythological way of doing it. And then they talk about human intentions and human subjects behind the COVID instead. But COVID is not human. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Rune Hjarnu, a doctor of history of religions, educated from the universities of Uppsala and Copenhagen. He has lived and worked in a number of countries, with a particular focus on Afro-Atlantic and Nordic religions. He is the creator of Nordic Animism, a popular YouTube channel that explores the themes of Nordic religion, culture, and history in short, accessible videos. As well, he is the originator of the Rune Animist Calendar that introduces seasonal animism from Northern Europe. In our conversation today, we look at the function of mythology as the capacity to create relationship. We explore the challenges of modern culture, where the absence of functional mythology gives rise to conspiracy theories. And we learn how the pantheon of Nordic gods can provide expressions of transgressive masculinity. Finally, we explore the myth of Ragnarok and what guidance it might offer us in these apocalyptic times. Before we begin, I wish to let you know about the Mythic Masculine Network. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. If you wish to dive deeper into the themes and practices explored in this podcast, head over to themythicmasculine.com and hit Network to claim your free trial. And now, enjoy my conversation with Rune Hjarnu. Welcome, Rune, to the show. Thank you very much. I'd love to hear first a little of where you are in this moment, you know, geographically, spiritually, emotionally. Well, I'm uh, I'm sitting uh, in uh, COVID, deep COVID lockdown in <laughs> in Copenhagen, uh, and uh, yeah, I, it's actually 
I think uh, things are getting a little bit tough over here, and and it's also it's also a bit heavy. We're six in my apartment in uh, in, in lockdown right now. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, I think we're gonna have an amazing spring and summer. Actually, I think I think I think we're gonna have like a summer of '69 or something when <laughs> when this whole thing is over. <laughs> wow, and. Refresh me in that area of the world as well. How how dark are the nights? You know, this time of year, or how how little sunshine is there? There is not a lot of light. Not a lot of light. Is uh, I think it, when you compare Scandinavia to North North America, uh, North America is relatively colder. So um, if you draw a line from Europe and straight over to North North America, you'll find a, a warmer climate in Europe, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Rome and New York, I'm told, is kind of on the same level. So Denmark would probably be, I don't know, southern Alaska or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, so that means that uh, that we have uh, pretty pretty dark winters, and um, but though not particularly cold, you know, it's mm-hmm. not. My, my impression is you have much cooler, in every sense of the word, winters in mm-hmm. North America. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, well, I myself am on the west coast of uh, Canada, and in particular, an area generally known for its more mild, uh, temperate rainforest you know, climate. And so it's oh, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. very different than the rest of, of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I would very much like to go there one day for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, well, maybe so. I'm really excited about our conversation today because... Uh, it's the first time perhaps that I've been able to speak with one as uh, learned uh, in the subject matter of which you know, I think we'll cover some, some vast ground today. And my understanding is that you, you really have uh, devoted yourself to uh, exploring and learning of uh, the, the roots and the, the culture of Nordic animism, as well as uh, world, world religions or religions as a whole. And would that be accurate to say? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a historian of religion and, uh, I'm, I'm actually, um, well, you could say an anthropologist of religion. Um, I'm, my, most of my education was actually about Afro-descendant religions. So I studied an Afro-Brazilian uh, form of, uh, Orisha religion. If, if, if you know what Santeria is, uh, I think it's pretty common in North America. It's a similar form. Uh, and, but then I've also, like, on the side, I've always like been interested in in Nordic uh, uh, traditional religions, and after I finished my PhD, I started focusing on specifically on how to how to think in in almost like in more activist ways with Nordic history religions, where you think of it not only as an object that you look at in the distant past and kind of make scholarship about wondering about what people might have thought inside their minds, but where you, you kind of engage it in, a, in an active way and say, what can we use this for today? And that's sort of, uh, that's one side of, 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 of what I've called Nordic animism. Um, so, and I'm also trying to sort of open that as a field of, field of scholarship, basically. And so I'd love to hear a little more too about your, your back history. You know, I understand that you had quite an eclectic, earlier years of, of exploring and, and a number yeah. of you know, places and, and I'd love to hear some of that. Yeah, I think eclectic is a good <laughs> is a good word. I I've I've been quite a lot around in the world. I, I think I I started studying fairly long time ago, but 
but but I've always like I was always like interested in this thing about going out to different places. Immediately after high school, I went off to uh, the northern part of uh, Sápmi or uh, Lapland and lived and started learning Sami up there. Then I went to, uh, started studying and at some point I was in Ghana doing some movie about traditional religiosities there. I worked in Sudan and Angola in in actually mine clearance programs. Um, uh, and um, uh, I've been quite a lot in Brazil and worked with a uh, Brazilian fighting style called capoeira that I also practiced for many years and so on. So I've lived in many countries. I actually also lived in Canada at some point uh, in um, Montreal. And what was it about then that brought you to to study more directly religion and, and mythology? You know, what is it in you that really called you to that path? Well, I think I was always fascinated by it by that stuff and drawn to it. I think some people just have a stronger sort of innate sense of religiosity than others. Uh, and uh, like my family comes from this, I guess from a global perspective, kind of weird uh, Danish form of Christianity, which is very focused on pre-Christian religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are even pastors that will, or there were pastors in the, in the 20th century who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a hundred percent Christian, but I'm a 90% heathen and stuff like that, which is a kind of a weird thing for a, a pastor to say, you know, <laughs> uh, inside this, yeah, Danish form of Christianity. So they, and they used to think about the Nordic gods and so on as almost like the, um, the, the old testament of Danish uh, or, or Nordic Christianity. And, and I kind of grew up with that. So from, from as a child, uh, you know, my, my grandmother, she always read, uh, read to me the, the Nordic, uh, mythology of our ancestors and, and so on. So yeah, the, the, I've, I've had a long history of being sort of attracted to that through, well, basically most of my life. Uh, and that is also why I've, I'm studying it, uh, in, um, in academia, of course. I always like to ask my guests as well to to define some of the terms they use, just so there is a, a somewhat of a shared understanding, um, in particular around this word mythology, which of course you know, to, depending on who hears it, they, it might mean something that isn't true. And uh, I would love to hear how you define what mythology maybe is and and how it functions. Yeah. Uh... Well, there are different there are different ways of viewing mythology, of course, uh, and well, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to, want to go into like the different ones. The definition of mythology that I think is key, or no, I wouldn't call it a definition. The, the the way of looking at mythology that I think is important is to look at mythology as a way of creating relation. Humans create relation with the world in a specific way when when uh, we use mythology. And that means that it is the relating that is the important thing. The mythology is not, it's not, uh, I, I think we would probably, I suspect that we would probably be sort of culturally coded to expect mythology to be this sort of cons- consistent whole of narratives, a little bit like, say, Tolkien's world or, uh, what's, what's his name? H.P. Lovecraft's world, who, the, you know, a writer who composes this whole consistent universe, right? But in fact, mythology is not like that because we, and we expect mythology to be like that. And, and of course, there are recurring figures and so on. But since the point of mythology is creating relation, not creating consistent narrative, 
then that is what the mythology does. It creates relation. And that's why, for instance, uh, like if you ask practitioners of Orisha religion, what is an Orisha? Then you can get the insane, you know, panoply of different and sometimes wildly contradictory explanations. They will say an Orisha is a pre-colonial Yoruba king who died and then became deified. They would say an Orisha is a force of nature. They would say an Orisha is a, is a, the same as Santo Antonio, a saint. Uh, they would say an Orisha is a, uh, uh, a father. The, uh, my Orisha is my father. They would say the Orisha is a, an abusive rapist that comes and takes me in, uh, in uh, trance, religious trance. They would say the Orisha is a child that the priesthood, uh, re- uh, do you say rear in English? teaches mm-hmm. to become itself in, in the cult. So there's these, and, and you see all these different languages for what a deity is, they do something very concrete. They create trance by uh, creating the Orisha as something very intrusive. They create a, a specific relation by calling the Orisha a father. They create a very different relation by calling it a child. Now we can actually enact and form the enactment of the Orisha through this way of relating. So these are different mythic images. Yeah, I love that, that mythology is a way of creating relation. And I've never heard it that way, and I really I, I really like that, because I think in the absence of that kind of working or dynamic understanding, often one can even come to mythology as, as again, just some sort of free-floating set of narratives that you know, are sort of invented or, or live primarily, you know, psychologically, which often I think happens in, in the modern context where uh, they, they're just sort of internal ways of understanding one's own experience. Uh, and something about that has always left me feeling again, like, where is the world in that understanding? Because I feel like, you know, from this old function of this sense of mythology, you're right, it's a very active way of of being in relation, of, of you know, tending to the world, or at least that's what I'm hearing. And so, yeah, I really, really appreciate that definition. Yeah, yeah. And and this also means that, that uh, like, I actually think that, that our lack of mythology in the modern contemporary world is creating some of our problems, our lack of capacity to produce mythology properly. So, uh, for instance, when you have a COVID, that, that is a very violent, it's a very, you know, marked thing that's happening in the world around us. When stuff like that that's really remarkable happens, then we need mythic images to engage that, to relate to that. However, modernity tells us there isn't a soul, an intention, a subject that drives the COVID, COVID pandemic. That's just a virus. It's just like, you know, a virus is just like a little machine, a little bigger than a molecule. Uh, so we intuitively missing that. It's like, it's like we've been deprived of that language almost, you know? Uh, and then what people do is that they desperately try to create a language that can read the intention uh, in the COVID, and that's where conspiracy theories actually emerge, uh, because uh, pe- people need to read intention and subjectivity, but they have sort of lost the mythological way of doing it, and then they talk about human intentions and human subjects behind the COVID instead. But COVID is not human. That's really great, too. I really love that definition. Um, it's sort of like where the longing for for narrative or for mythology comes from. Because, you know, if we do use COVID example, 
you know, I've been struck by how so much of the mainstream narrative seems to be a a kind of just that that this is a war, right? This is a war with a uh, sort of un, unthinking and yet nefarious, you know, happening uh, that is simply seems built upon the deeper war of civilization against nature. And so anything that would circumvent, you know, the, the the supremacy of civilization, we must be at war with it. And that's all of the language that you hear around COVID, right? Which is, we got to yeah. fight this, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all of it is based on war and, and winning. And yet the mythological understanding, right, invites a whole other possibility. And in its absence of really kind of uh, a narrative brought forth, you know, from, let's say, the powers that be, no wonder that there's this thriving subcultures of various ways of, quote, trying to explain it in different terms. Totally, totally. I think it's a really good observation you have there about <clears throat> that there's a warlike relation to, to nature that's being reproduced. Whereas when you look at these uh, people in northern India um, that I mentioned in, in one video there, that, that they are, they what they're doing is that they're actually engaging a friendly, mutually positive relationship with COVID by creating, by creating COVID as a goddess. So they have the Corona Devi, which is a goddess that they are. And so they're sitting on the, on the riverbanks with their uh, incense sticks, uh, these women in Uttar Pradesh in northern India, India, and basically uh, creating, uh, relating to code in a, in, in, in a positive way. Now, that actually, you actually see that historically also, that, that humans sometimes create these deities Basically, as the personification of a disease, but then it becomes a, 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 a deity of healing, um, and uh, so so that's and I think that is that we need some of that. I mean, I think we need we need West African diviners and uh, Amazonian shamans to <laughs> sort of feed mythic feeders healthy mythic narratives somehow. I'd love to turn now to Nordic animism, uh, which seems to be, again, a, a clear focus for you as well. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about what do you, what do you mean when you say Nordic animism? And, and, you know, I would love even, if you're willing, a bit of a history lesson, because I know a little bit about that, you know, the Scandinavian region and sort of the pre-Christian era. But um, I understand they were colonized, you know, later than a lot of other areas, sort of in Northern Europe. And, uh, and I would love for you to just draw a bit of that, you know, historical narrative for the listener. Okay. Uh, yeah. And when I say Nordic animism, I mean, the word Nordic, I'm using that in a kind of fluffy sense, actually, uh, because I'm sort of interested in a cultural space that is sort of Northern Europe around the North Sea region. Um, I wish I knew a little bit more about the British Isles. I'm sort of focused on Scandinavia. It's, and, but I actually believe that, uh, that uh, human ways of engaging the world, such as animism, they are very dependent on the actual um, eco space, geographic space you're in. And that means that if you go and find people speaking a very different language, like Finnish or Estonian, you might find something that's very, very similar. So, so I have these sort of intentionally fluffy uh, identification of Nordic, and I also want want it to be open to diaspora peoples. I, I, I feel that, that your descendants in North America has, uh, the same kind of claim to Northern European, uh, heritage as people who 
live in Northern Europe and have uh, super Viking sounding names and all that, uh, all that Conan gear. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and then there's animism, which, um, which is important to understand that animism is not just the idea that everything is animate, or at least that's not how scholarship sees it today. Animism is more, the way we see it today is more like the fact that there are persons uh, around us and we have, uh, and they, and, and, and they, we should respect them. <laughs> uh, a key note of how animism is seen today, and I, I recommend really a British scholar called Graham Harvey, who wrote a book called um, Animism, Respecting the Living World. He talks about that in many indigenous culture that has strong animist knowledge, you find respect as the main sort of node of this way of dealing with the world, respect. You treat the world with respect and the world uh, is mutually respectful back, right? So that's sort of the animism thing. Now, when I talk about Nordic animism, or when I look at an Nordic animism historically, it's partly an attempt to to sort of um, uh, redefine how we look at, at uh, religious history, because there tend to be a little bit of this very sort of polarized idea of religious history that that uh, people were pre-Christians and then it went crack; they became Christians, and, uh, and that was a completely different thing. And this, that, so there's this sort of very rupture perspective on, on that, that specific tradition or, or transition. Uh, and what I think in, in, is that, in fact, uh, the, the implementation of Christianity in, in Northern Europe, probably in all of Europe, was, in fact, a very long and very bumpy road. And you find very, very heathen looking things at very, very late, surprisingly late points of history, uh, such as the, the Swedish uh, shamanic practice of Orskang, which is a, a kind of a, a vision questing practice that was practiced until the 20th century, uh, but which in its nature look very pre-Christian actually. So, so these are and in the encounter with Christianity, what you also see is that Northern Europeans have these um, ways of sort of trying to make space for to reinvent traditional knowledge in, in, in new ways. That traditional uh, animist ideas or ways of handling the world are being sort of uh, transformed uh, with Christian ideas. Uh, and like... I studied Afro-Atlantic, Afro-Caribbean religions, where you see very much the merge between uh, Catholic uh, saints, for instance, and, and Orishas or Loa uh, uh, deities. And uh, I think you see almost exactly the same in Scandinavian Middle Ages, that that the um, uh, very good example is the Swedish uh, national saint, uh, Saint Eric, uh, which is almost identified, or, or, or not, no, no, it's very similar in a number of ways to the the god Frey, that was the uh, um, male fertility god that was very important, particularly in Sweden. And and these two figures have been so merged inside people's minds that there's a case, a uh, documented case from the Middle Ages, where a Swedish peasant went up to Uppsala, which is like the very sacred uh, location, like Black Hills of Sweden or something like that. Uh, and sacrificed a horse to Saint Eric, <laughs> which is it's not a very Catholic thing to do. To sacrifice <laughs> a horse to Saint Eric um, is, however, a very heathen thing to do. So, so there there are these 
ways that things change. They change into something else, but they, 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 they are still an animist way of relating to the world. So if you see, for instance, how seasonal traditions have been reinvented uh, down through history, you see that there are specific aspects they, they certainly move into Christianity and then we get Christian Christmas, you know, uh, but, uh, but the, often there are motifs that are recurrent. And sometimes these, mo- so, sometimes there are motifs that have an incredible stability. Like, um, one case is the New Year's, is it called the New Year's resolution in English? Mm-hmm. This, this is, I think this is an ancient, a heathen practice that, that you can read about in the sagas that warriors with some Viking king or something like that, they, they are putting their hands on a, on a boar that's supposed to be eaten at the Christmas uh, celebration. And then they make these vows. I'm going to do this and this in the coming year. And, and you see this in, well, in, in specific points down through history. And, 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 and these are kind of, Things that are just there and they have, they may have some sort of, they may be tied in with an animist logic, a way of relating to the uh, turning of the world. You also have quite a, a rich YouTube channel, which I've discovered and, and you Thank speak, you. and you speak a number of, number of topics, a number of uh, themes, you know, from time to, you know, cosmologies, it feels like to even, the the sort of current Nordic uh, appropriation by you know alt right groups, and uh, I mean I'd love to just get your uh, articulation of you know what is the current state do you feel of of sort of Nordic you know mythology iconography as as you know maybe the general populace seems to know it because I feel you know I can just say from my side as a in North America you know I've seen a couple seasons of Vikings you know on History Channel and uh, that there is a a certain sense of an awareness of like, you know, Odin and Loki, you know, from the Thor movies. And, and I'm just curious, you know, how helpful has that been in terms of actually sort of spreading a, a, a functional or at least an introductory knowledge of these kinds of things? How much is it maybe misinterpreted, you know, intentionally for Hollywood or for the, again, like extremist groups? Like, how would you just, you know, sort of speak of the current state of, of the, the Nordic presence? Yeah. I'm actually a little bit like unin love or not in love with the whole concept of Vikings in itself. Uh, the Viking Age itself was a fairly brief history in Scandinavian uh, history that happened very long time ago. Very important period, extremely important period, but quite short. But it was it, it, the way that people have been for centuries actually kind of fetishizing Vikings as this iconic whiteness, really. Uh, I find that to be really unfortunate uh, for the, or it has a very unfortunate uh, impact on Eurodescendant sort of claims to, or will to uh, re-engage traditional culture or um, perhaps re-indigenize, if you, well, it's probably not a good word to use right but but say let's say refine traditional culture uh because because it's such a it's such a stereotype and it, like if you if you contrast it with racist stereotypes uh like uh, for instance 
I don't know, black facing, uh, sort of Jim Crow stereotype for black people and stuff like that. These are idealizing stereotypes. Vikings are an idealized thing. It's something that people would like to say about themselves. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, people like to, to see themselves as, as Vikings because it's something powerful and dynamic and there's, it, it sort of signals a kind of an, an unity with the, the, I don't know, a primitive, uh, bon sauvage sort of existence. Uh, and I'm just, I'm suspicious of the whole thing. When it comes to these particular media, what they also do, I think that, I think what they do is probably not sort of unambiguous. Say the Vikings TV series. It's certainly, most definitely creates this image of the ideal Northern European as this sort of, is like an underwear model with some super cool hair and some intricate sort of braided thing with awesome hipster tattoos all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, and, and this whole image is then contrasted with the people that the Vikings are interacting with, the Anglo-Saxons, in, uh, for instance, who, who are like these scrawny little weak kind of pale, <laughs> pale people. And it's like, what? The Scandinavians and, and Anglo-Saxons are like... Uh, so similar peoples, like almost identical peoples. No, not identical, of course, but, <laughs> and so the Viking t- series, if we take that example, certainly has this aspect of fetishizing Vikings at, as, as a kind of, I think, essential whiteness, an unfortunate way. What it also does is that it, it, um, but it also, I think it also touches people, the, these kind of media in, in a way that's not only negative. Uh, I think it also does some important things, you know, some positive things to people. Yeah. When I think of that as well, I, I see it maybe invoking some kind of pre-modern, uh, connection or pre-modern longing to, to a way of being, which, you know, it seems imbued with just so much more meaning, so much more. You know, not not to say glory for glory's sake, but just a sense of of real purpose. You know, and I hear that even in you know some of the men that I uh, speak to who also you know appreciate the series and and have this like, wow, you know, I've never I've never witnessed brotherhood. You know, like like they seem to have there. You know, in that in in, in the Vikings, and I've never seen that just that level of you know honoring their gods and this kind of stuff. And and so yeah, I, I see also that element there. It is a longing of sort of to crawl out from maybe under the crushing boredom that is modernity, the demythologized, you know, reality yeah. of which we're presented in, in this sort of scientific rational universe. And so yeah, I feel like that's in there too. Yeah. Yeah, you you're right. And, and actually the last time I I I not so long ago I re-saw a bit of the Vikings series, the first part of it. Uh, actually, I couldn't help thinking, uh, there's something about the way of portraying religiosity that I think is very strong because they portray, they portray these people as very human and a little bit like edgy and a little bit uh, kind of, but there's also very devoted, uh, religiously devoted. And, and that is not unconflictual. It's not like a kind of a, kind of an oh, sort of harmony state. It's, it's very much like, lived human beings that have drives and there are other beings around them that they're sort of engaged with. And I think that particular image has probably had a very powerful impact on on people. Mm. Well, I'm curious to speak about 
reclaiming a, a, a sort of, you know, an ancestral animism or an ancestral indigenous, Euro-indigenous root, which I do feel is, at least when my, you know, explorations and, and working with a kind of decolonizing structure here in North America, you know, speaking with the indigenous of this place, that there is, seems to be a, a real kind of call and, and Im, Im, imploring those who aren't from here in this sense to do that work as well, you know, to both dismantle systems of oppression and in the ways in which uh, systemic racism exists and, and also to do their own, their own ancestral work. And so I feel like the piece you're offering is really such a way in for those that do have that ancestry, you know, through Northern Europe, a, a way into a kind of living relationship to, yeah, to the symbology, to the mythology. And I would just love if you could speak a bit more about like, why is that so important uh, right now? I think the whole, the whole uh, project of modernity the idea that we should um, view uh, uh, nature as an external resource uh, uh, base uh, or storage that is just there for us to deplete or perhaps take a little bit better care of so we don't deplete it as quickly, or but it's just there. I think that fundamental way of perceiving the world has shown cataclysmically, apocalyptically, destructive already now we're standing at the, at the we're talking about covid right as if that was a bad thing well i mean what we're standing at the bridge at, at the edge of with uh, biodiversity breakdown and uh, climate change is unimaginably worse um and so i think i think we need to rethink how we relate to the world and the basic step the first basic step is that we need to stop unrelating to the world and start relating to it again and the basic uh, one very fundamental way of doing that is basically rolling back and saying what is there in inside our own uh heritage that can that can help us do that like if we look at the world around us how many uh, climate reports from some UN agency. Do you think has come out that's it's a hundred and seventeen hundred pages long, and it says that there is a, an apocalypse on the way, and it's composed by uh, ice core analysis and methane releases and global tipping points and all kinds of languages that people don't understand. It doesn't change people's relating to the world. It doesn't change. It, it doesn't work, dude. And so what we need to do is we need to find the best and most powerful language in our cultural history that can uh, that can make the urgency clear for us and give us some markers for how to navigate into a more related way of dealing with the world right and animism is that you know animism is a way to to say okay we need to look exactly for these parts of our cultural history and take them out and, and let them, let them live again. And this also means that, that is not like, it shouldn't be necessarily like a, an attempt to go way, 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 way far back and find uh, and imagine some, some very consistent, uh, state somewhere in the deep past, but it's rather to look at these ways. How has these, had these relate ways of relating moved through the time, times? And how can we, uh, how can we, uh, engage them again? Uh, 
because they have been, and when, when, when we talk about colonization, they have been rejected from our way, our, our way of, of knowing, our way of practicing in the world. Um, we are your descendants. We have not been subjected to, um, genocides and, uh, land theft or generally not uh, subject to, uh, to these things and cultural deprivation and these things that Native Americans and other Native groups have been uh, subjected to. But what we have, what we have been subjected to is the implementation, implementation of another kind of knowledge where our own traditional forms of knowledge have been, uh, oppressed. Um, I came across this amazing story. Uh, because I was working with calendar, I actually I published actually a calendar, kind of a, as a, as a manual for people to sort of uh, introduce themselves to uh, to animist um, uh, traditional animism. And there was a story about an old man who uh, who t- spoke to an uh, early modern scholar in Sweden. And the early modern scholar, he sp- he asked him, "How do you know when this market here, the Uppsala market, when it's happening?" There's a very old holiday when this market is happening. And the old man, he said the following, well, I have a rune staff that I got from my father and that he got from his father. And on this staff, I can see when this full moon happens. That means that then I need know when I need to go to Uppsala. However, now this calendar has, and then he used a weird expression, it has turned around with Auni. That means that it has uh, that a little bit more than 300 years has ha- had gone by, the old man said. And that means that now the, the notch needs to be moved one, one notch, uh, or the moon needs to be moved one notch on the staff. Now, the crazy thing about that is that an old man in the late 16th century, no, uh, the late 17th century in, in, uh, central Sweden, who probably never saw an inside of a school, had a very, very precise astronomical, uh, observation there. The thing is that what he described is actually astronomically precise, uh, rendering of how exactly this kind of calendar has a small imprecision that is manifest over a period of 304 years. It has an imprecision of one day. And he expressed this with the word Auni, which is actually an ancient heathen concept that has to do with some of these cycles. So his, what basically happened is that he had a very, very complex, uh, cyclical, uh, seasonal knowledge phrased in traditional, uh, indigenous concepts. And, uh, and then, that has just disappeared. I mean, this is a weird story that you find in some marginal book somewhere. And it, and perhaps perhaps people would say, yeah, well, that's maybe he just learned that from the university. And maybe he did. But that is what traditional knowledge is. It's something that's moving on. It's something that's moving through the time. Why do we expect this old man in Sweden to be all exotic and folkloric and wear clogs and play violins and have, you know, uh, rune staffs that don't really say anything? Why don't we, why, why does our expectation to this old man not allow him to go into the university, use the contemporary knowledge of his day? You know, 1680 or wherever it was he lived, uh, and, and, uh, and, and use it to reinvent his traditional knowledge with it, right? Uh, and, and his way of reckoning time has disappeared out of Scandinavian history since then. But, uh, but this is, a, this is a, like when, when you apply a little bit of a post-colonial perspective on this 
process of an, a kind of knowledge being rejected, then we we see these traces of how our um, our uh, way of of relating to the world has been subjected to modern uh, colonization. Mm-hmm. What is the importance of time in, in calendar? Because, you know, you, you, you put your effort into and you released, uh, you know, I saw just an image of it uh, recently, it's a very beautiful calendar um, that in some ways feels like it reclaims a, a, a rhythm and a relationship uh, from this uh, other understanding of, of the, like, the cycles of the moon, I believe, and, and yeah, relation to the, to the earth. And why is it so important? Because I, I mean, I, I know it is because I feel like uh, from different sources I've heard this. But I would love for you to share, like, what is it about reclaiming the the relation to time and to the seasons, you know, and calendar that actually is very, in many ways, is very subversive to the, the, the dominant order. I'm not actually sure, man, mm. but but I I just feel it strongly, and I think a lot of people are who are for instance drawn to northern european traditional heritage they they at some point they start being like dude calendar we we need to get hold of the calendar kind of figure out the calendar and and that's uh so i think there's a very strong sort of intuitive drive to regain calendar so if i should sort of speculate in why it's important then i think it's because if you are on our is that longitude or latitudes? Anyway, in our, our climates, then you will uh, experience strong differences between summers and winters. And you'll experience rather marked differences between light and dark. And this means that uh, there's a very strong feeling uh, when you look, for instance, at Scandinavian folklore, and I'm sure you could find the same in British folklore or Baltic folklore, uh, Russia and so on, that uh, the world is sort of a machine, uh, but we are part of making it run. Humans are sort of uh, responsible for the, the, uh, the right functioning of the world. We are in some sort of mutual relationship of giving with the world and, uh, and we need to participate in it in the right way for it to function in the right way. So, for instance, uh, one, uh, many different nodes, but one very clear node that you find throughout Nordic seasonal animism is handling of light. You will, people will, uh, make pyres at specific uh, points of the year and they would uh, carry light into their uh, into their uh, villages or into their farmsteads and and they would light uh, candles and make candles in certain ways they there's there's a the home the the fire inside the home the heath is treated in certain ways and uh, so there's a there's a whole complex of things that have to do with light and uh, and that again relates i think to the the cycles of light in in northern europe uh, and this is also why for instance the cycle of the moon which is a changing light uh, is really important for people it strikes me as fascinating actually around the relationship between maybe it's appropriate to say earth-based understanding or earth-based calendars you know versus in my understanding of the Christian calendar, right? Like, for example, Easter or, or, of course, Christmas. Like, they're related to this mythology, in a way, of of Jesus and his rebirth and, you know, all this stuff. But it feels like 
you know, for a long time, people have been able to make a link or a case that, you know, this comes from older rhythms, that Easter is related to the, you know, Oster or, you know, the God of fertility and, you know, all these things. And so it's just fascinating to, to recognize that the, like you said, um, the relationship that humans have to keeping the world going and, and to being in relationship to the earth is encoded, you know, within these calendars, uh, within these cycles that are actually related more explicitly to, to the earth versus explicitly to a kind of, you know, a transcendent God elsewhere or something, which does feel to be like a real distinction um, between, you know, sort of the, the Christian era and then the pre-Christian era. Um, but, but like how much was able to sort of be smuggled and, and kept alive, you know, but sheathed within the, the, the post-Christian uh, colonized period. Yeah. It's difficult to give a simple answer to how, sort of how much, because uh, things also do change, you know, mm. and, and they're not just stable, but, but I think there's some, there's some beautiful, amazing examples of, of how the, for instance, the Christian, um, what do you call it? Liturgical year or the year, the, the holiday year, um, seems to be sort of undercut almost as if it's culturally hacked by, uh, by animist logics. So, uh, for instance, there's a day during March, which is called, I believe in English, it's called Lady Day, uh, or Annunciation, Annunciation, I think, which is, uh, the day where, uh, Mary had sex with God. So nine months later on, uh, uh, December 25th, uh, she could give birth to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So already in the Christian, uh, imagery, there's a, actually a sexual suggestion there. Um, and then what happens is that this word, in, in Scandinavian language, the word Our Lady would be Vor Fru, Our Lady. So, but that, then a s- slight change happens. It becomes, instead of Vor Fru, it becomes Vor Frun. Then it suddenly means the Spring Lady, because the word Vor can both mean ours, but it can also mean spring. Well. And so all of a sudden it's not, it's not Mary anymore, is it? It's a spring lady. And, and, and that holiday is located exactly at a point of year where people used to have celebrations, uh, on, on, on a, on a specific full moon around that time where, uh, where specific fertility goddesses were celebrated. In Southern Scandinavia, uh, the period leading up towards uh, the, the spring lady day is marked by symbolism that, that, um, seems to refer to, um, sky deity, probably the god Thor. So there's almost a symbol of, there's almost kind of an advent as if the sky deity comes more and, and more. And then the spring lady day is there. And then nine months later, a new year is born. Wow. Uh, and, and these symbols, these motives, they're there subtly. They're there subtly. And they sort of, they, they live in these, yeah, subtle reinterpretations of, of uh, Christian meanings where all of a sudden the birth of Jesus Christ seems like, it, it almost seems like the birth of the new year as a result of the, you know, uh, marriage between a sky deity and perhaps an earth goddess or something like that. Um, so this is an example that, that people use this sort of voodoo-like, 
way of reinterpreting symbolisms to kind of let their animist perception of the world live also in the Christian idea. And so what I'm trying to do is if we can kind of scratch away a little bit in, in sort of the Christian paint on top of it and look inside, then it is that we can find these, this, uh, these aspects of, yeah, Euro indigeneity, basically. I'd love to turn to the subject of masculinity and looking at that in relationship to the, to the cosmologies or the Nordic, you know, animist understandings. And I wonder, is there a way of understanding like how, how they would relate to or, or, prescribe you know certain behaviors over others like i'm just curious you know what you've been able to uncover in your explorations i mean on the one hand it's important to not idealize and make the past into sort of uh uh what we would like it like it to have uh on the other hand it's important to realize that the past is not you know, the, the, there isn't kind of, if we go back through in time, it's not like it's just going to be more and more conservative and, and patriarchal. <laughs> it's just the far, the further back we go. It's not like that. Um, one thing you find very much, I think, in, in, uh, uh, folklore, folkloric culture is that it's a very erotic way, actually, of relating to the world. And I find it quite characteristic for the Northern European way of, uh, relating to the world is very, actually very sexual. And, uh, of course, and, and this all, all also has, uh, aspects, uh, the, the, the many aspects of, of, of trans dressing and different ritual purpose for different ritual purposes and, uh, and stuff like that. You find that, uh, you find that quite a lot. And if you go, uh, all the way back to pre-Christian religion, for instance, you you find um, I think you find concepts that are very comparable to what you find in the, actually the Afro-Semitic religions, which is that that um, male priesthoods uh, are effeminate or feminized. Uh, also, even though they might be uh, heterosexual, they they still have an aspect of femininity to them, and 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 these are complexities that. When we think about ancient peoples, ancient uh, culture, that is important to remember. And that doesn't mean, I mean, you're not going to find an LGBT, you know, wokeness in Viking Age Scandinavia, probably. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but you're probably also not, you're also not going to find uh, kind of sexually conservative. You're not going to find, you know, like for instance, Men having sex with men might not be controversial in the same way. Uh, there are actually Viking graves where you find um, uh, trans-dressing men and stuff like that. Um, so, so masculinity. But the, and of course, you know, if you look at if you look at source material, you also find a lot of like warrior culture and heroic masculinities and uh, these kind of uh, what we would probably identify as more sort of uh, normatively or even stereotypically uh, masculine uh, aspects also find that uh, but you also but I think the Norse cosmology is a cosmology with a lot where with a lot of focus on transgression which is ironically opposite 
to what uh, there's a big group of people who identify heathens who are extremely focused on distinction. They say, oh, yeah, so Nordic cult mythology is all about distinction. It's all about, you know, there's the inside and there's the outside and there's us and there's them and there's... <laughs> and yeah, there are distinctions. There are distinctions in all mythologies. But what I think is totally marked about Nordic mythology is the opposite, transgressions. There's a lot, the, the distinctions almost seem to serve to create transgressions. So, for instance, the, the king god, uh, or god of kingship and warriorhood, Odin, uh, is associated actually with, uh, transgendered, uh, behavior. So, 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 so it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing. There's a, you know what, <laughs> you know what, a crazy thing. There's a whole, there's a whole sub-discipline called I think it's called queer Viking studies. <laughs> Isn't wow. that crazy? Queer Viking studies. And um, if you go to uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Matthias Nordvik, he has a really, really good uh, channel called the Nordic Mythology Channel. And in in a, in a recent episode, I think he is uh, interviewing a, is her name Amy, Amy Franks or some, some, something like that, who's actually studying, she's studying this about, this whole thing about uh, queer, queerness in, in the Viking Age and, and all that stuff. And it's, and it's very interesting. Well, there's something I feel with this animist invitation or, or animist skill also, right, which does invite a, a different way of, of relating to the world, which I, I would say, you know, even from a modern day lens of, of a masculinity that feels often very either monolithic or often based on power, you know, power over and dominance, that in fact, that's not much of a relationship, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I think that can be made clear that when you dominate something, you know, you're not really in relationship to it. You're just sort of bending it to your will. And that's a sort of idealized kind of power within a, a dominator system, you know, as Rian Eisler talks about in uh, Chalice and the Blade. And so I guess I I'm, I'm, I'm feel like I'm recognizing a kind of inherent subversive nature to that kind of masculinity by any animist culture, which, which you know, makes the case for or even like embeds relationship within the way that it is itself mm. yeah i, th- I think uh, I-, I totally think so i totally think so i think that that the and i think you're actually you're spot on uh, with this uh, there you c- clearly you know thought about it and de- developed good thoughts <laughs> the like the idea that relating is is fundamental sort of uh, that would force fosters more varied forms of relating. There is a scholar whose name I forgot about right now. She's called uh, Caliban, Caliban and the Witch was the name of her book. Sylvia uh, something Italian sounding. Uh, now she actually uh, remarks how the shift between feudalism and capitalism in Europe uh, was uh, when that shift ha- happened between those two world orders, there was a marked decrease in the status of women. Uh, so the traditional capitalist system that we come from actually uh, represents a decrease in the, in the position of women in relation to the feudalist system. And this is not to say that the feudalist system was any kind of utopia. Probably totally wasn't. You know, we don't want nobles who live under different law than the rest of us and so on. No, no, that's not it. But the status of women, uh, for instance, uh, commoner women uh, in, in Europe, was actually better under feudalism than under uh, than, than in the capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And the witch hunt um, 
uh, witch hunts were part of implementing this sort of, I mean, she, uh, Federici, her name, sorry, her name was Sylvia Federici. Uh, she basically sees the implementation of the witch hunts as almost an, uh, a gender side to sort of implement the new lower status of, of women. Um, yeah, this is just an example of a, an earlier state that had, had a, from our perspective, perhaps slightly more progressive uh, position. Wow. In our conversation prior to this uh, as well, we we touched on, you know, what were the relevant myths of uh, perhaps like, a you know, an older understanding of the world that could be, you know, made alive again or could illuminate this current situation. And you spoke of Ragnarok as as a possible lens that could offer a lot about this time. And so I'd love for you perhaps to, to share that myth, you know, in some fashion uh, for the listeners. Um, and then how does that illuminate, you know, this particular moment? Yeah, the, the, the Ragnarok, <laughs> I think, is perhaps the most important myth that we have right now, <laughs> uh, perhaps globally, because it is a myth. It is um, it's a Euro-descendant, very old, very deep myth that is, it emerged, or probably, it probably emerged as a reflection on the consequences of climate breakdown. Because Northern Europeans actually experienced that in the 6th century, in the 6th century, I think it was, there was a, a volcanic eruption, I think it was in Mesoamerica, that caused a global cooling. Now, the global cooling will obviously hit colder places harder than warmer places, so maybe it didn't have very big influence on Italy, but it had an incredible influence in Norway, a cataclysmic influence. You see, like, human societies basically collapsed. And uh, today there is a line of scholarship that sees the Ragnarok, which is a, a description of the collapse of the ordered world as a reflection on climate collapse, basically. The myth is recounted in, in a, an Eddic poem, that's the uh, old medieval uh, Viking Age poetry, which is called the Volaspa, uh, and that means the, the prophecy of the seeress, or the sh- uh, female shaman, Völva. And, and she foresees how the ruptured relation between the gods and the trolls, the chaotic forces, that it is as, as if these very diverse and very dynamic relations, transgressive relations, often sexual relations between gods and trolls or giants, that they break down and then there's a war that emerges where they kill each other. And after the, after everything has, uh, has, uh, after they, they, they've killed each other, a new green world emerges. From a traditional knowledge perspective, this is interesting because uh, it might reflect uh, millinerism. And millinerism is a, is a kind of a religious reaction that humans often have when our, uh, when our world life, our existential world has collapsed. So you see it a lot in colonized situations, actually, that... Uh, uh, Vovokar, the ghost dance in the, in the, in the American plains in the late 19th century. Uh, they, they say, you know, the world will collapse, but then a new and better world will arrive where we will get back to the ordered world where the buffalo is there again. There are white people massacring, massacring everyone and the world has, has come back into order again. That's a millenarian reaction. And, uh, the Volospa 
emerged at a point where Scandinavia experienced very radical social changes. There was urbanization, Christianization, uh, globalization, and state formation. That's a lot of social change happening at one point of time. That is why people at that point, or that's why I, I think that people at that point were reflecting on the loss of traditional culture in relation to the very recent at that point experience of hardcore climate change. And this is, of course, why the Volospa uh, and the Ragnarok myth of the collapse, uh, the collapsing world is more telling than any other myth, I think, in the world about our situation today. Because we, we're standing sort of at the, at the back end of modernity with an ultimate loss of uh, traditional culture. And we are facing uh, like directly into a Ragnarokian collapse of, uh, of uh, climate, basically. And actually, it's also funny because I think people are, 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 are catching on to it. There's a Norwegian, no, Danish-produced Netflix series called something, Ragnarok something, that actually associating the Ragnarok with environmental collapse. And I've I've also seen it a little bit in other other situations. So this is really a myth that is speaking so powerfully into our time. And so my curiosity is, how did that myth provide uh, like a sense of meaning or a pathway through that cataclysmic time, and and what might that provide for you know those of us in this time? Well, I think one of the one of the markers, one of the, one of the things it says, is that when you look at the whole frame of the mythology, then I think it says something about broken bonds cause the cause the collapse. Um, a parallel myth talk about a king who has two troll women who are driving a magic millstone that produces the, the wealth of his kingdom. But then he gets greedy and he, he runs them, he runs them too hard. And then they get angry and turn against him and they, uh, invoke collapse on his kingdom. Uh, and I think this idea, there's a contract, there's a social contract between this king and these forces of nature, but he breaks the contract because he wants too much. Um, I think when we look at, at, at our world today, we see rupture in social rela- relations in so many ways. One thing is that we are socially ruptured from the world around us. We're socially ruptured from our landscapes, from animals, also the animals we eat, you know, if we eat meat. Um, but another thing is that we're ruptured from each other. The whole way that the, um, the, uh, the internet, uh, the social media works today is directed by this uh, attention extraction capitalism that seclude us in these algorithm-produced uh, information bubbles. And that means that we're not talking. We're we, 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 we all living inside these mirror cabinets. Uh, and that rupture is, of course, creating some of the insane collapse behavior, Ragnarokian behavior that, we, uh, that we're seeing today. Like, as, as we're making this recording, it's less than a week ago that we saw uh, people uh, storming into the Capitol wearing, you know, grotesque, carnivalesque uh, stuff. This is a Ragnarokian thing we're seeing, and it's partly caused by these mirror cabinets that are rupturing us from from talking to each other. And perhaps we, we now I say we on the left, I belong on the left myself, uh, um, 
I also also carry some guilt. Like when I run these uh, platforms on Nordic animism, I mean, I indiscriminately block, ban, and delete anybody who was so as much as breathe something that sounds racist, for instance. I just, I just do not want it. Uh, and, and I feel it's necessity. You know, I wouldn't be able to communicate if I had to, uh, debate with flurries of, uh, you know, white supremacists, uh, just screaming, basically. But it, it's, it's a sign that we are not, it, 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 it is also a way of un, Unconnecting, untalking, uh, you know, uncommunicating. And I think that is a fundamental teaching actually of the Ragnarok myth that, well, perhaps a fight, a confrontation of sorts is coming and perhaps we need to prepare ourselves to fight. Perhaps that's what traditional knowledge tells us, but it also tells us something about how it can be avoided. People always often see, for instance, Vikings as this very warrior-esque thing and so on. And it is, it is. But it, when you look at the, uh, the pre-Christian Northern European culture, peace, frider, was a really, really important concept. It was a religious concept. That was what people prayed for every year. So peace and fortune, arsuk frider. That was the, that was a main prayer. Uh, and in order to achieve peace, I think, reconnecting all of us with each other somehow. Well, so many great themes in there. Um, you know, one thing I'm just on that na- uh, sense of peace or praying for peace that, you know, perhaps looking at the you know TV program, uh, of, say Vikings. I mean, like I said, I only saw the first uh, season, but there's something about the narrative dr- drive that sort of seems to say that sort of war was happening all the time. But um, I think from an actual lived experience, it seems like war is very, very costly, right? Not just to, you know, people and land and in a village, but also like the ruptures that perhaps take generations, you know, in order to heal. So I don't, I just, I would wonder about that, you know, like if, if it was that widespread to a peoples that really understood both its consequence. I actually think it was pretty widespread. Uh, I think that it, if you look at uh, certain traditional cultures, you find Quite a lot of war, but fairly low intensity. Uh, that that people are sort of engaged in war a lot of the time, and they. But uh, but it's 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 much much lower intensity. It isn't this sort of industrial scale mass murder that we know from our contemporary wars that are just atrocities beyond belief. Um, and and I think. Iron Age Europe would, would, uh, would probably, I mean, uh, now I mentioned the concept of Friedrich and it's important, uh, but it was, you know, it's, it's, it's also important to sort of when we look at past, uh, societies to remember that they were different from us and, and, and there were parts of, parts of them that we don't necessarily want to idealize. <laughs> well, going back to the myth of Ragnarok as well, you know, there's this funny kind of, convergence that seems to be it seems to have happened as well you know we look out on the sort of competing narratives of today where the the sort of enlightened left somehow has dovetailed into this like far right you know it's the sort of like wellness people anti-vaxxers you know mixing with the extreme right you know q and and it's interesting to me that there was a word that uh, was coined uh, by one author uh, he called it conspirituality I don't know if you read the piece on that. Yeah, but I, I appreciated that articulation because in some ways, it's like both of those sides seem bent on a certain narrative, right? Which is 
the current world's collapsing and that there's some better land on the other side of it. Uh, but like one bends to a more nefarious sort of projections, right? That it's, you know, a certain, certain fundamental elite or reptilians or whatever it is. They're sort of running the show. Uh, and then there's the other side, which is, you know, it's all about mass enlightenment and like waking up and the new consciousness and the age of Aquarius. And it, it's, it's, I'm just seeing a parallel, I think, with the Ragnarok myth of this, you know, I think you use the term again, millennium, millennium, or this, um, this sort of reaction to a real fundamental uncertainty of, of, of a certain order breaking down and maybe a very short period of time. Um, and so the, the being able to turn to myth can be very helpful and it can be also very distorting in some ways, I think, if it's not understood the, of, of how to work with it. Mm. Yeah, I think these, well, I, I actually I haven't looked specifically into the whole conspirituality. Uh, I've seen it. Uh, um, but I think that particularly the, the conspiracy theories, uh, I personally, I think they're, they're dysfunctional mythologies. They're, they're what happens when humans try to create mythology to produce relation to reality, but fails because modern epistemology, modern way of perceiving the world is rupturing us from, uh, from, uh, we can't see a spirit in the tree and we can't see a spirit in the COVID pandemic. So we say, oh, okay, so the COVID pandemic is driven by human intentions. Um, and, and, and it's sort of, uh, so, so that's basically what I think. Overall, I think I would see this as a result of these broken down relations that I was talking about before. People have, uh, what also happens in the extract, attention extraction, uh, social media capitalism is that our attention spans decrease and they decrease to a level that I don't, I don't think we understand how much they dec- decrease. My mother, when she began at the university, her good friend started reading English at the university. The first book, they, they, the first two books they got when they, as a Danish student of English, started at the University of Copenhagen. You know what that was? One was the Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon. The other was an Anglo-Saxon grammar written in German. That was the two first books they got. And I was like, okay, now you start. But that, that was, that was in the mid 20th century, you know. Their parents, they wrote, they wrote uh, essays in Latin in, uh, when they were in high school. Today we have a level where, uh, where people's capacity to think two sentences down, to read two sentences down is so low that Donald Trump can become president because people, people can't remember from one sentence to the next that he is evidently contradicting, contradicting himself from one sentence to the next. In one sentence, he, he says, go down Pennsylvania Avenue. And in the next sentence, he says, or oh, those people who did that, they, they were really bad. You know, we should, now is the time for unity. And, and people, people don't remember. And this is ruptured, uh, this is ruptured attention. It, it's a, it's, it's a function of the, of the ruptured, uh, the ruptured world that we live in that's spinning towards the round the rock. I'm reminded of a, I think it was a quote from Martin Prechtel, but it said something about, you know, humans are spectacular at forgetting. And, and I see this function of, of ceremony and ritual and, and mythology as a way of sort of reiterating relationship to the world because it's, it's normal in a sense and natural to forget. And, uh, and it's very human to do so, but it's, the danger, of course, is is too many people forget, 
then that rupture becomes, you know, un, untraversable. Um, and yeah. so I wonder, I wonder in these times now, I mean, you're doing really amazing work, you know, of course, offering the YouTube videos and trying to instruct, I see as this like bridging, you know, back from, from this rupture. And, you know, I wonder what might you say to the listener as well, who also is interested in this and really wants to maybe take one more step towards, you know, reanimating, a, a reanimating an animist, you know, a, a relationship to the world again. Well, let me first say, I think, uh, again, you make a really nice point there. Uh, the whole thing about that thing about forgetting. Uh, and perhaps what I'm talking about is really remembering in a sense. And, uh, actually you find, uh, you find in, in some of these, uh, ancient poems and stuff like, you find that the initiatory drink is called something like minis vegar, which means a drip, a cup of memory. So, when you're initiated, you you uh, you receive a cup, and that is the cup of memory. That that uh, so the idea of memory as the connection, uh, I think, is a really strong one. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah, and what people can do, I don't know. I think I think we we all have to. I think we all have to uh, sort of find our own ways. There are many people who are working in different ways with how to uh, re-engage landscapes, with uh, re-sacralize, refinding, for instance. There are uh, North Americans who are refinding traditional, actually Euro-descendant culture of relating to food, like uh, what, do, what do they call it, food, um, food sovereignty, while they're living uh, in close connection with Anishinaabe, uh, people in, I think it's Minnesota. Uh, and, 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 and then they are sort of finding ways to living with the land. It's an awesome example. There are people who are looking at, uh, how to refine sacralized, uh, sacralized, uh, groves and, and these kind of things. There are people who are working with cutting across, uh, cultures, moving into other cultures. I've used myself the concept uh, Finfara, which was what the Vikings called it when they went and lived with indigenous populations, the Sami, and then they returned uh, having having learned animist knowledge basically from the Sami. And uh, I think the concept of Finfara, learning from others as a way of of uh, of getting the Minishvik, uh, gaining the the drink of remembrance, is also something that we need to. Uh, we need to work with. Hmm. Well, beautiful. I love that image of this this cup of memory as as the initiate steps forth. And uh, I feel like this whole conversation has been that has been you know to drink from the cup of memory. And um, really grateful for our time today. Great. Thanks for thanks a lot for uh, for having me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com and click network to claim your free trial.